Thank you for listening to TMA's Practice Well podcast. TMA, helping you improve the health of all Texans. Hello, I'm Cheryl Kroviak. I am the director of the TMA Education Center, and I produce the TMA Practice Well podcast. In this episode, I will share with you a taste of CME from TMA's largest conference, TexMed. TexMed is TMA's annual meeting where physicians can attend CME talks across various specialties, all geared towards educating and empowering the physicians of Texas. TMA members can attend the conference free by pre-registering. Just click the TexMed link in the episode description to register for our next conference. Today, I've pulled together a compilation of popular talks from previous TexMeds, just to give you a taste of the variety of topics covered. First up is Dr. Sprintz, a national expert on addiction and chronic pain. Everyone, thanks for coming. So again, I'm Michael Sprintz. I am uh, board certified in pain medicine. I'm boarded in addiction medicine. I'm also boarded in anesthesiology. The other thing is uh, I've been in recovery myself from uh, drugs and alcohol, including opioids uh, for over 21 years. So a lot of my talk, I come from the experience and the perspective from both uh, an addict who suffered from this disease, but also as a professional who has, uh, who's been working in this field for, uh, for about uh, 10 years. So actually a little bit more than that. So today, what we're going to talk about, we are going to review the basics on the disease of addiction and its neurological basis. We're going to talk about warning signs uh, of how, you know, in my, in my practice, in my clinic, how do I identify someone who may have a problem? And then the last part is we're going to talk about, okay, well, what do I do? How do I manage this? And I recognize that one, not everyone here is a pain doctor. Most likely no one's an addiction medicine doctor. That's fine. You know, a lot of times in primary care and in all the different specialties, addiction doesn't care. Addiction shows up in all our patients, regardless of our specialty. And the key is knowing when is it actually a substance use disorder and when isn't it? And then what do I do? And it's important to remember that pain is an experience, okay? Pain is not just a physical injury to tissue, all right? Pain is physical, yes, but pain is also psychological, it's emotional, it's energetic, it's spiritual, it's all of those things, right? So pain tracks in the brain go to our memory, go to our limbic system, our emotions, right? When the stove is hot, I know I still remember that, and that was a long time ago. So it's important to recognize that pain is not just the physical part. I mean, if anyone's ever had their heart broken, yeah, it's not physical, but it sure is. So when we think about the overlap between pain and, uh, and addiction, and, and I'm going to use the term addiction and substance use disorder interchangeably. I know there's a lot of issues and conversations going on in the field about addiction or addict and the stigma, stigma related to it. Um, well, at this point, I am boarded in addiction medicine and I'm gonna talk about addiction, but I wanna acknowledge that really where the field is moving when we're describing addiction is about substance use disorders. Um, and addiction actually covers also the behavioral process addictions as well. And we'll talk about that slightly. So the primary experience that patients with either chronic pain and or addiction have is suffering. Whether you have addiction, you're suffering. If you have chronic pain, you're suffering. And what's the primary driving emotion for both of them? It's fear. 
So with addiction, how do I stop? I'm ruining my life. What's going on? How do I get more? How do I, you know, when does this end? And it's the same thing with chronic pain patients. Am I always going to have this pain? Is it going to last forever? Is my partner going to leave me because of my chronic pain? You know, I, I'm afraid every time I go to the pharmacy that they're going to judge me for having a, a, for being, you know, quote, an addict when I'm not, I just have chronic pain. So these fears drive people's behavior. So what I'm, the point I'm getting at is the overlap between chronic pain, a patient with just chronic pain or a patient with just addiction, that overlap is really astounding. So remember that when you're, when you're managing patients who may have chronic pain or you're dealing with a patient who may have addiction. So you, you may be comfortable managing one or the other, but the reality is they're both being driven by those same core negative emotions. All right, so we're now in the era of the opioid crisis epidemic and everyone's sitting here and they're going, damn it, well, if, if, I, if I prescribe too much, I'm gonna get busted and I don't know how much too much is and the DEA is gonna come down on me and I don't know what to do. But if I don't prescribe anything, then I'm at risk of, of getting sued for, for not caring for my patient. And so I always love this one, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't. But the thing is, we do care about our patients. You know, the problem is that for most of us in training, who trained in the 90s uh, and the early 2000s, you know, what we learned wasn't correct. We realize that now. And I want to acknowledge that we are all under uh, the constraint of a healthcare system that does not, that doesn't support the patient and the physician relationship well at all. So the other piece is that virtually none of us were trained or very few of us were trained in, in the principles of addiction medicine when we first learned. I wasn't, I don't know if, any, was anyone else here trained in anything about addiction medicine more than one class in their medical training? Yeah, I didn't think so. I would have been surprised if it had. So the reality is, is that we now have to, we're now responsible for, and we have to pick up all this extra information that no one had trained us. Um, and the other part is patients are complex. These patients with chronic pain are complex. Addiction patients are complex. Now you combine the two, it's, they're, they're challenging. And I want to acknowledge that, that we're dealing with a very challenging patient population. And now we're trying to balance you know, pain relief and patient needs, abuse, addiction, diversion. It's hard. Dude, I'd hate to have your patience. So this is a direct quote from a colleague and friend of mine. And this was early on and I was, I had opened up my practice and I was doing chronic pain and addiction and he's a chronic pain doctor. And he's like, dude, I would hate to have your patience. And I looked at him and I'm like, well, we have the same patients. I just manage them different. And that's a really key point. I don't necessarily, now I do have patients who just have addiction, but the vast majority of patients who come into my practice, they've got chronic pain. And I don't get into arguments with my patients about whether they have addiction or not, right? Because the moment I start, you start arguing with someone about a position, you're gonna lose and the relationship is lost. And so it's really important to realize that it's not that our patients are different. You all have very similar patients that I do. We all have them. We just don't know it. And how we manage them is different. Okay, so we're just gonna go through the basics of addiction. Well, what is addiction? I don't have this slide here, but I always like to quote Cookie Monster, who says that uh, when one cookie is never enough. 
All right, so American Society of Addiction Medicine has, uh, has a, a new updated uh, definition of addiction. It's a treatable chronic medical disease with complex interactions among brain circuits, genetics, environment, and an individual's life experiences. The bottom line is that people with addiction do bad things that harm themselves and harm others. And they keep doing it and it's compulsive despite adverse consequences. Well, okay, how can I tell who has a substance use disorder? You know, this is the, this is the, the whole key because no one ever taught you. You need to look at the whole picture of your patient. You need to understand what's going on, you know, with your patient. And you wanna be present and you wanna listen. Now, I wanna acknowledge, I know we don't have a lot of time. I got 10.7 minutes and I gotta figure out what's going on with my patient and, you know, what do I do? We know that if you pause, take your hand off the door and sit down, look eye to eye with your patient and just for a minute, listen to them. That's really important because what that will do is that enables you to, he to hear the patient and equally important, it enables the patient to be heard. Um, ask the uncomfortable questions, you know, like in the 1950s when everyone was, you know, unhappy or careful watching um, or asking about sex. And now we're like, you know, how many partners? What do you like? What's your gender? What's your preference? All of that is fine. But when it comes to addiction and substance use disorders, we're not comfortable asking them. Be willing to ask them and do it without judgment. And then watch your patient, observe their behaviors. Use risk and psych assessments, drug test your patients, check the prescription history. And you wanna talk with family members and other providers. That's where you're gonna get your information. Uh, because the bottom line is, it is not as obvious as you may think. So I had a colleague of mine who called me about a patient. We'll call her Mrs. Doubtfire. And she said, you know, Mike, I had this patient and she's 83 years old and she tested positive for meth. And I'm like, okay. And she goes, well, so I tested her the next month after that. And she tested positive for meth again. I said, okay. She goes, what do you think? I said, I think your patient's doing meth. <laughs> and she's like, but, but she's 83 years old. And, and, and she, I, I see a picture of her and she's like, she looks like Mrs. Doubtfire. And I got to tell you, she looked like Mrs. Doubtfire. She did. But I reminded her, I said, remember that when this person was 33 years old, she, she was 33 years old at Woodstock. And all of a sudden it clicked. We are now at that point where the whole 60s generation, you know, not everyone dies from addiction, right? And so we don't know who's going to look like an addict and who doesn't. And that's really important. So again, be present and listen. And I talked about that earlier, and I'm going to talk about it again um, when it comes to rapport and building trust with our patients. The complete program from Dr. Spritz is available in the TMA Education Center. Next is two snippets from the popular George R. Hugman Ethics Forum, where a panel of physicians discuss common controversial communication blocks between patients and physicians. Welcome. This is the George R. Hugman Ethics Forum presented by the Board of Counselors. I am Elisa Berger. I am a urologist from College Station and the chair of the Board of Counselors. Um, we're just gonna start out with scenarios. A patient objects to the use of blood products for religious reasons. However, the physician recommends a procedure that involves the use of serum albumin derived from blood. 
How should the physician approach this situation in order to balance the patient's religious concerns with the physician's medical concerns? Does the approach differ if the patient is a minor and the parent and or legal guardian objects based on the religious beliefs? And we'll start this one out uh, with Dr. Alozi. Yeah, I, I don't know if this is the hardest of the three so far or the easiest of the three. Um, I mean, sometimes I think that vaccinations are easy compared to this because it's a yes or a no, right? And you have a relative risk of, first of all, getting an infection, they're responding to the infection, or do you go to the hospital or not? There's a host of Swiss cheese models that come into effect with the SARS-CoV-2 infection, right? That the vaccination can change your risk, but not necessarily reduce it to zero. This is a little bit different. And I think palliative care sees this a lot. Um, in the hospital, we see this a lot. I do a lot of um, ID in the ICU and have three of these patients right now back home in El Paso that the family and the patient just refuse to get blood, right? And so we temporize and we have conversations with them every day. And every day it's a different conversation, right? The first conversation is, well, this is what we think will work. This is the sort of standard of care. We're not gonna do that because of X, Y, Z. You come back the next day. Um, have you had a chance to think about this? What are your concerns? I'm glad that we're having this conversation. Where can we go from here? What are the options? And like you said, and I think that's critical, we're not having a code conversation, right? Or a DNR, DNI conversation, because once that's on the table, this conversation's over, right? It's really hard to pivot people back away from that. And I think whether it's the caregiver, whether it's the adult, if you lead with the compassion of you're trying to do, and I think we've all said that, right? You're trying to do what's best for their family member. On average, that gets to people. There are, and I think also we have to be careful of not trying to be miracle workers in this space, right? We're all sort of type A personalities and we're all sort of used to working through med school and undergrad and fellowship and whatever. And it's our power of spirit, right? Our power of will that has gotten us to certain places. That's great in academics. It's not so great in human beings, right? And human beings recoil to that. And there are some times that we just have to, for lack of a better term, take an L on it, right? And allow them to make those definitions and those decisions that they want to do, right? Again, you said, check your ego at the door. Um, that was the whole Michael Jackson heal the world thing when they were recording. And you have to check your ego consistently, not just at the door, but in the room and having a conversation. All right, we do have more hypotheticals. A patient discusses his gun collection with the patient's physician. The physician becomes concerned about gun safety, especially since the patient has young children at home. The physician asks questions about keeping the guns locked up. The patient becomes upset and accuses the physician of conspiring with the government to take guns away from law-abiding citizens. How should a physician approach this situation with the patient? Does the approach differ when the physician is trying to address the parent or other legal guardian of a minor patient about gun safety? So, um... I have the advantage of living in Galveston and then also growing up in um, East Texas. I went to high school in a little town called Corrigan, which is um, 25 miles south of Lufkin. And I have my in-laws that live in Nacogdoches. Um, and I have the ability to relate to patients in that particular way because my in-laws are avid gun owners. Uh, they like to engage in hunting. And they are very careful about how they 
about how they lock up their guns, especially when young children are in the house. And so I use the sandwich technique with that. I said, so what do you like to do with guns? Do you like to go do target practice? Do you like to go shoot? What do you go shoot? Is it ducks? Is it deer? Um, tell me about what you like to do. And so um, I've used that technique. And then I said, so um, once you are done with your guns, well, what do you do with them after that? And then once that happens, and then they tell me about that. So, well, you know, how do you feel about how you are storing them? Do you think that's an effective way of storing them? I don't automatically say you're doing the wrong thing. And so those types of techniques are things which I've used. And not just with guns. I've done that with alcoholism also. Well, I should not use the word alcohol, intemperate use of alcohol for patients to have diabetes and how it affects them. So um, how are you doing with your liquid calories? So um, tell me about soda. Um, so tell me about Starbucks. So tell me about alcohol. And so I find a way of sneaking that in there in that way. And when you start with the less judgmental thing um, that many people feel is judgmental of them, then they're more likely to give you what they think is the truth and answer after that. The Ethics Forum is always a popular program. I advise you to get there early to get a seat when you join us at TexMed. Now I'll share from Dr. Alfonso's talk on amphetamines, the next epidemic, what history has not taught us. Thank you so much. My name is Helene Alfonso. I am a psychiatrist and I work at John Peter Smith County Hospital in Fort Worth, Texas. We are also a teaching institution. Um, as a psychiatrist, I have a unique experience there. About a third of my population is uninsured. A third is Medicare and Medicaid, and then a third of my population is private insurance. Fort Worth, Texas is considered somewhat underserved when it comes to mental health, and most of the private psychiatrists in Fort Worth are cash pay only and do not accept insurance. So I have a very varied uh, patient population. I am board certified in psychiatry as well as addiction. And my background is neuroscience. Much of my research is with the Neuroscience Institute at UNT Health Science Center. So the history lesson is that we've had amphetamine epidemics in the past as early as 1929. It started off as a decongested and bronchodilator in 1929. Um, by 1937, the AMA had approved the advertising of benzodrine sulfate for the conditions of narcolepsy, post-encephalitic Parkinsonism, and minor depression, which as a psychiatrist, I've yet to diagnose anyone with minor depression. So by the 1960s, we might've heard of like black mollies. I, I guess I do work with a lot of patients who have some addiction issues. And so black mollies is basically reference to a diet pill that was used in the 1960s. Um, by 1930s, however, they had already been reporting psychosis. And we kind of have this idea of psychosis that, you know, although that only happens to some people, you know, only some people are prone to that. And the sad reality is every human has the ability to become psychotic if the circumstances are right. They started questioning, you know, maybe it was a latent schizophrenia that was unmasked by use of the drug or some fault of the patient's genetic code. But eventually, and, and I think this is a quite profound statement, that by 1958, the statement to say amphetamine psychosis could happen to anyone and eventually would when given enough of the drug. So finally, by 1970s is when all amphetamines were shifted to a Schedule II. So we all know Schedule II is pretty much the most addicting substance that we can prescribe. So opiates, let's look at our opiates. 
This is ironic. A trade war with China in the 1700s, you know, how is it we're constantly at this trade war? The British East India Trading Company um, was basically getting the opium from India, bringing it into China and trying to shift the trade deficit so they could get cheaper Chinese goods by kind of trashing their economy. By 1839, China was recognizing that, you know, this addiction was spreading throughout their own people. And um, when the British East India Trading Company said, well, we want you to legalize it so we can tax it, they responded by threatening the death penalty to offenders, which then led to the first opium war, which the Chinese lost and then opened trade to the rest of the world. And that is where we started getting our opium coming in for the Civil War. Addiction was sharply rising by 1896, over half a million pounds per year in 1896. Could you imagine with the limited production ability they had to be capable of that, which means there's a lot of money in this. So that by uh, 1914, Harrison Narcotics Act is where opiates were only made a prescription. Now remember, it wasn't until recently opiates are scheduled two. They were scheduled four before that. I think everyone here in this room very well knows um, the opiate pattern of what happened of where, you know, pain became the fifth vital sign. We had to be aware of treating it. Doctors lost their licenses for not prescribing enough pain medications. We had to go through CME conferences that were telling us, guess what, doc, you know, opiates are safer than you thought they were. They're actually not addicting. And, and here's evidence that says that it's safe and you should be prescribing more or else they're going to take your license away. And how many times we had to sit through these CME conferences saying this isn't logical and doesn't make any sense. How can that be? Um, and of course, now there's multi-million dollar lawsuits. And of course, while all of these companies have stated they have no responsibility or culpability, there are million of, millions of dollars that have been given to different cities and states um, in response to companies' actions in the opiate epidemic. So here's the playbook. Prescribing this drug is safer than you think it is. It is safe and compassionate treatment. Everybody's doing it. If a patient behaves as if they're addicted, this is tolerance, and you treat tolerance by giving them more. And as long as you have an ICD diagnosis, you are at less risk of addiction than other people. So this is myth number one. Prescribing this drug is safer than you think it is. So myth number two, prescribing this drug is effective and compassionate treatment. Of course, you know, pain being the fifth vital sign, you know, um, also the VA adopting this is also what spread to, you know, this is compassionate care and that if you're not treating pain, you are a bad doctor. We still, I don't know why we still have this pain assessment tool every day, because um, even though we no longer, I guess, prescribe as many opiates, at least in the clinics that I work at, we still have to use this pain assessment tool for every patient. So pseudo addiction. So this was a case of a 17 year old man with acute leukemia. He was hospitalized after a few days, he started behaving. Some people, uh, so if you've heard of like using behavior, um, that's a term that's no longer preferred to be used. But basically he would be requesting medication earlier. He'd be moaning, crying, grimacing, um, trying to get the medication earlier. And they said, in fact, it was not idiopathic opioid addiction, but it was pseudo addiction. And pseudo addiction is when you under treat. So when your patient starts behaving in this manner, they are displaying pseudo addiction. Therefore, you treat that by giving them more. So if they behave like they're addicted, give them more. So right now, there might even be a lecture at this conference, which talks about how we underdiagnose ADHD in our 
under treating with stimulants. Stimulants is, for, is the first line treatment when it comes to treating ADHD. And the marketing has been expanded. You know, they said, oh, we need to recognize that it's a lifelong condition. And it is a lifelong condition, but that adults should be taking stimulants throughout their lifetime, not just in childhood. So this study here said amphetamines are among the most dangerous and currently abused psychoactive drugs. They cause, cause dependence, behavioral toxicity, and physical damage. It was from 1971. This is not a new article. This was the common sense of the time, you know, previously to the last maybe 15 to 20 years. So one of the big arguments for not prescribing stimulants to adults is that it increases heart rate, increases blood pressure, and causes strokes and heart attacks. So this study has been heavily cited saying that the risk was less than what we thought it was. However, there's some very important parts of this study. They said it was 806,182 person years. That is the, the measure that they used. However, most of these patients were only tracked for about 1.3 years each. That's a very short time of your life. If a child is prescribed Adderall at the age of five, and we're saying they need to be using it for the rest of their life until they're 65, that is not 1.3 years. And then even in this study at the bottom, it says there were apparent protective associations likely because of healthy user bias. Yes, if somebody has high blood pressure or heart failure, they shouldn't be taking stimulant. And that came out in 2011. So Canada, of course, started catching on to some of this. By 2005, um, they kind of halted everything with Shire Pharmaceuticals, um, who makes Adderall XR, amphetamine dextroamphetamine salts. They noticed there were 20, um, 20 international reports of sudden death in patients who were taking it, um, 12 reports of stroke, and many, some of these, half of these were children. Well, it said, well, five of the youngsters had significant cardiac risk factors, some of which were only identified in an autopsy, which basically means this child had a heart defect that nobody knew about and dropped dead. And first of all, I will say that, um, and then one at least had a family history of cardiac ventricular arrhythmia. So kind of like they put the blame on the patient saying, well, that patient had a problem. So they were a different type of a patient. EKGs are not a standard practice. And even if we had done an EKG on some of these children, we probably would not have caught the cardiac abnormality that they would have had. So that's our playbook. Prescribing this drug is safer than you think it is, just like with the opiate epidemic. So stimulant ADHD medication risk for stimulant abuse. Note that this study- TechSped also offers programs to help cope with the stress and tolls that every physician faces in their career. Our next taste of TechSped is from Dr. Nanda on wellness tips on how to enjoy practice again. So burnout, a lot of the studies, I wanted to put this in because a lot of the studies go, go to these uh, causes of burnout or, or these types of burnout. One is exhaustion, so emotional and physical, so either one, depersonalization, sense of personal identity, reality is lost, sarcasm, cynicism. Um, it's almost like seeing a patient as a number, not as a patient. We've all gone through that. Um, and then lack of efficacy or uh, personal accomplishment. Uh, really, you know, we see patients throughout the day, but we're like, we didn't really do much today, right? There's just a lack of accomplishment. So that, that's an issue. Uh, so these are kind of the three kind of tenets of burnout that a lot of studies look at uh, in the literature, which, which we'll talk about here in a second. So causes of burnout, some practical issues uh, in the office setting. I, I talked about this a little bit before, mentioned a clerical burden, right? We're all into charts, paperwork issues there. Increased work productivity requirements and expectations, reimbursement issues, billing insurance, is a, it's a big issue. Uh, me, myself, I'm in solo practice. So 
I don't really deal with this a lot because uh, I don't have any, any boss or anything overseeing me. So that's that's something that, that I like being in solo practice. But a lot of us who aren't have to deal with a lot of this. But again, solo practice, maybe I get a little more of the clerical burden and have to do with a lot more reimbursement issues potentially. So we all have different, um, uh, different experiences with this. Again, stress is from management and supervision. There's stress of practicing medicine, medical education. You know, we have to be board certified or, you know, uh, uh, recertified, maintenance and certification, things like that. That kind of creeps up on you. So that's an extra kind of things in our task uh, that we have to do. Um, interestingly, so us physicians, I think overall, I mean, physicians, we get along, we've gone through the same things, right? No matter our training, residency, fellowships, uh, we deal with the same uh, stress as a lot of us. But really, there are issues, per professional breakups, personality conflicts, financial conflicts, non-compete clauses. You know, we always hear horror stories about physicians being uh, um, really going through bad professional breakups, leaving a practice, getting fired from a practice, things like that. Um, and, and we hear about them, but we don't really talk about it as much. Um, I put down here ego. That's a big issue, uh, of course, um, with all of us. So what about physician factors? You know, a lot of us, when we applied to medical school, we had a lot of, um, you know, a lot of us put on our personal statements, right? Why don't you be a doctor? You know, we you know, we care about patients, sense of duty, things like that, um, compassionate. But a lot of these traits, what makes us good physicians, um, really causes some burnout potentially. You know, the service and sense of duty, it could be a, a, an issue self-sacrifice. You want to be excellent. You want to do perfect care for our patients. We try to do it, but perfectionism, it can lead to burnout. Curative competence, you know, if a patient's not doing well, we feel personally responsible. And then compassion, you know, it can lead to emotional isolation. So just keep that in mind. You know, the things that that make us good physicians and wanted, you know, geared us toward going into medicine, had the desire to go into medicine, can cause us uh, some burnout uh, issues. Uh, so personal resilience, you know, I would probably say resilience in terms of you want to respond to a stress in a healthy way to uh, achieve goals at a minimal and physical and psychological cost. So you want to kind of bounce back uh, from any kind of adversity. And there are ways to improve this on an individual level, institution level, and community as a whole. And I'll go over each of these here. Individual resilience, maintain adequate sleep, nutrition, and exercise. Uh, again, duh, right? But, but easier said than done. So, so that, that's an issue. Um, you can't be perfect at any of this. You know, I, you know for me, um, food is a big weakness of mine and, and, and sugary drinks, you know, with the, with the high fructose corn syrup and things like that. So, you know, instead of taking two sodas a day, maybe I've, I'm trying to cut down to one. So that's a win for me. So, so just kind of, you don't have to be perfect. Uh, if you don't exercise, you don't have to go immediately and run a marathon, just doing basic steps, okay? Um, finding a sanctuary outside of medicine, very, very important, I think, uh, whatever you want to do. It doesn't have to be this most politically correct thing, you know, um, it could be whatever, whatever you want to do. I like to watch television, watch sports. I'm not saving the world by doing that, but I don't care. You have to relax in the ways you want to, so, so that's the key. Um, addressing your spirituality, and it, it can include religion. It doesn't have to be religion. It's just one outlook on life. So that's an important thing. You want to address your physical, emotional, or substance abuse issues, seeking professional counseling, mental health care action. That's an issue uh, with us physicians. We really, you know, we, we like to take care of others. We don't really do a good job of taking care of ourselves. 
there's issues in, um, you know, in uh, like hospital uh, privileges and things. There's that question, right? Do, do you have any, you know, substance abuse healthcare? And, and it really gives us, um, doesn't give us an advantage or really um, the problem with those type of questions. And, and they're, they're reviewing those or they're, they're abolishing those a little bit. Um, but unfortunately, you know, you don't want to be forthcoming about that. And it really doesn't, uh, it doesn't help, unfortunately. Uh, so, so, you know, it's really a shame and, and, and issues that, that physicians have with seeking medical care, even mental health care. Uh, so just be aware of that. Authorities, legal action, there's, there's a big issue with that at times. Uh, domestic abuse, we talk about domestic abuse in our patients, but you know, physicians are also victims of a domestic abuse. So, so definitely keep that in mind. A lot of our physician colleagues have, have issues with that and we just don't talk about it as much. And again, take your vacations. That's uh, very, very important, I think, um, to, uh, to, to help out. Um, a lot of us kind of work through vacation. We you know, take our work with us on vacation, emails, things like that, but you really want to shut it down if you can, um, as best you can. Doesn't have to be away. You can just have two days off, you know, a weekend off, things like that. So, so in the office practice setting, so this is kind of a thing that I think is is an important uh, important one. You know, you want to acknowledge even the small wins, routine medical cases or treatments. You know, being an, an allergist, immunologist, you know, I, I treat a lot of asthma. And, and there's a big focus on like biologic therapy, severe asthma, you know, the, the worst case, all these conferences we go to, very specialized, you know, the worst case of asthma, what do you do with, with two or three biologics, this and that. But, you know, what, what really helps me get through the day is, is these small wins. I, we see a lot of, I see a lot of patients who are on, uh, you know, they, they have these diagnoses of quote, quote, chronic cough, bronchitis, um, and it's really asthma and no one's thought to, they've all been on the azithromycin and, and uh, you know, uh, other antibiotics, but no one thought of putting them on an inhaled steroid and I put them on an inhaled steroid and changed their life. That's all they need. Um, so I, that's, that's an important thing. We make a difference in our patients' lives. You know, we're not, you know, that's not going to be, you know, a case presented at a national conference or a late breaking abstract or anything like that, but really it helps our patients. So keep that in mind. Don't agonize over your small losses. You're not gonna, uh, not every patient's gonna like you. Not every patient's gonna be satisfied with your treatment. So just be aware of that, no matter how good you think you are. Um, again, uncertain diagnosis, need for referrals. Kind of one thing is check your ego at the door. And that's one thing in medical school when my professors told me, you know, you wanna help the patient, but if you don't know what's going on, uh, if you're not sure, I see a lot of dermatitis cases. I have no idea many times, more than I'd like to admit, but I have no idea what, what the issue is. So I usually, I use my dermatology colleagues to help out with that. If I need a biopsy, I use my dermatology colleagues. You know, seeing a lot of allergic rhinitis, non-allergic rhinitis, I utilize my otolaryngology colleagues. So, so definitely um, if it's asthma or if it's some other pulmonary condition that I'm not sure it's asthma, other things I use my, utilize my pulmonary colleagues. I even utilize my uh, allergy immunology colleagues to help out. So definitely you wanna focus on helping the patient. Try and reduce your ego if you can. So focus on what you enjoy about the clinical practice. You know, when we talked about applying to medical school, right, many years ago, when we, uh, when we applied to medical school, I don't think anyone said, I wanna be a physician because I wanna do prior authorizations and I wanna fight with insurance companies and I wanna do paperwork, right? I don't think anyone said that in their essays. 
if you did, you are the happiest person, right? So, uh, but really focus on what you enjoy. I hate that part of it, the bureaucracy, but I enjoy, you know, talking to my patients, the human aspect, um, you know, looking at photos of their dogs, things like that. So I kind of like that part of uh, medicine. Maintaining a sense of humor, very important. Uh, one thing you can do is keep a humor file for yourself, humor online, patient humor, humor with staff. The one thing though, as we all saw from the Oscar ceremony, right? Um, I don't want anyone to come up here and slap me or anything like that, but you know, you have to keep it appropriate, right? And, and it's so difficult, you know, the, in these eight, you know, days and times, this age, I guess, you know, it, it's almost like a dichotomy. On one hand, anything goes. On the other hand, we're kind of super politically correct. So, so just kind of think about it, you know, if you're, you know, and there's also, you don't know who's offended, who's not, you you pretty much just have to keep in keep in mind that um, you want to keep it appropriate. Um, if you have to think, will this person be offended by this? Don't say the joke. You know, just have your own sense of humor. You can do stuff online uh, or look at jokes online and things. Just just different uh, humorous things during the day. One thing I say to patients. Um, you know, if you get better, I'm taking credit for it. If you're not getting better, then we're blaming the other doctors for it. That seems to go well. Uh, sometimes patients come in, usually my male patients come in and say, I hate seeing a doctor. And, you know, my wife told me to come and, and, and I open it up saying, you know, um, I don't like seeing doctors either. So, you know, they, they get a little smile. So whatever you need to do to kind of de-stress is, is very As important. a membership organization, TMA invests in our members and offers leadership development programs. This last snippet I'll share with you is from Kim Becking and talks about how to lead from where you are. I'm excited to be here with you all decided not to be wearing a Zoom mullet. I'm a speaker and I do leadership development, travel all over the country. And during the pandemic, I sported a Zoom mullet, which is, I look good on top, but I have on my house slippers and my yoga pants on the bottom. So, uh, so I am absolutely excited to be here. So we're gonna talk today about leading from where you are, how to continue to boost your resilience and be more adaptable and build momentum no matter what. And it's been a few years, right? A long few years. Uh, for many, I say one year in COVID years is like a decade. So, and, and I'm feeling that. I, I don't know about you all. You've been on the front lines, right? Uh, taking care of patients and serving. And I've talked to uh, several of you before this program and the words I'm hearing are tired. Anybody tired, overwhelmed, exhausted? And at the same time, excited and hopeful. So you're feeling all of those emotions right now, which is absolutely normal. You know, you add on top of that, you have been on the front line serving in unimaginable circumstances with constant change, you know, regulatory changes, worried about your own health, the health of your patients. And it's been a lot. And so what I want to remind you of and what this session is all about is leading from where you are. And the fact that you have to lead yourself first before you can lead anybody else. Every single one of you has the same 14, 40 minutes in a day. And you get to decide as a leader, as a physician, as a human, how you're showing up. And what we know is change and uncertainty. You know, you all were seeing all of that even before the pandemic. And now it is just exacerbated. And so how do you make sure 
that you're looking at this change and uncertainty and growing from it because that growth is optional and you have a choice. You have a lot more power than you think right from where you are to lead from where you are and own your 1440. And that's what I want you to do. How you show up matters. Your words, your thoughts, your actions, your attitude matters now more than ever. Emotional intelligence and emotional agility and being able to meet everyone else where they are. You know, right now, many of you may feel like you're on an episode of Mean Girls. Anybody experienced anyone that's just, you know, mean right now? Other people are stressed out too, right? The collective trauma, the individual trauma. And so how can you continue to be the good and see the good and share the good? Because that matters now more than ever. And as a part of that, what I want you to do is I want you to think about something. I want you to think about how much things have changed. I want to take you all back to some simpler times, okay? I want to take you back to the year 1998. This was a bag phone. My dad got this for me when I went away to college. You plugged it into your cigarette lighter. It cost $10 a minute to use it. Who else had one of these? And, and think about how far we've come from this bag phone to our cell phones, to what many of us are wearing right here. How many of you had pagers, right? And may still have pagers. And, and so think about technology, think about how far we've come. Now in 1998, I was rocking my bag phone, hanging out at Blockbuster Video, anybody remember Blockbuster? On a Friday night, waiting to check out the Titanic on VHS, not just one VHS tape, but how many? Two. Kids were talking to creepy Furbies, who had a Furby? I was stocking up on Beanie Babies. This was my retirement plan. That did not turn out very well, y'all. That did not turn out very well. Guess what else happened in 1998? Google was founded in 1998. What did we all do before Google and Alexa and Siri? I have three teenagers, which is why I look like this on a daily basis. And I tell my teenagers, Google is like the encyclopedia. They're like, well, what's the encyclopedia? I'm like, well, Google it and find out. You know, and how did I ever know if, if this freckle right here was Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever? I Googled it because as you all know, everyone is Dr. Google right now, right? They come in, they've solved all their problems because they read about it on the internet. So think about that. Think about how far we've come and how many changes you have seen in your time as a physician. And now we have other changes, you know, telehealth and so many other things, even over the last two years. Many of you did things you never thought would be possible. And so think about that. As for me, in 1998, I was a young 27-year-old whippersnapper staffer for the mayor in Kansas City, Missouri. I'm a recovering attorney. Don't hold that against me, that attorney thing. I'm also a recovering political consultant. I'm in lots of recovery programs. But at the time when I was working for the mayor, he was frustrated because he couldn't reach and connect everyone he wanted to be able to connect with. Do you all feel rushed sometimes and feel like there's not enough time in the day? There's too much to do? Yeah, the mayor felt that too. So I went on to Google and I found out that you could do a virtual town hall meeting in 1998. I was so excited. I was so excited. I had found a solution to his problem. So I went to the mayor with my idea. I said, mayor, I have a solution. You all want to know what the mayor said? No. He said, no, I don't want to do that. I'm computer challenged. I'm 54. I'll learn to do that when I retire. The answer is no. Now I convinced him with my persuasive attorney skills that he should try. 
So we drove to the local media station, which was the only place you could even do it at the time. And something amazing happened. The mayor started connecting and talking with and reaching people he had never been able to reach before. You see, the mayor was willing to get out of his own way. He was willing to try something new. He was willing to get uncomfortable. How many of you have had to try something new over the last few years, right? All of you. And so what I want you to think about is, you know, this is actually what the mayor said at the time. He said, the experience foreshadowed how future generations of elected officials and politicians would have to communicate with their constituents. They would have to have this capacity or be left behind. You see, the mayor knew he had to innovate. He had to get uncomfortable. He had to try something new. Because if we don't adapt, we won't exist. And adaptability is one of the new keys as a leader, right? For all of us, that pace of change, that rate of change. Now, is going to accelerate faster than ever before. And here's the thing, I hear a lot of people right now talking about, I can't wait to get back to normal. There is no normal. There is no new normal. There's only what is now and what is next. What is now and what is next? And so I want you to think about that as, as you're showing up within your respective you know, practices and hospitals. And I know we have you know, private, we have lots of different types of physicians here but how, how you're showing up and how are you preparing for what's next? Because that is going to be your secret sauce as a leader. That I hope this episode showcases the variety of CME programs TMA offers both in person through our annual conference TexMed and on demand through the TMA Education Center. All of this free for TMA members and their staff. To get the full programs in CME, just click the link in the episode description. We hope to see you soon at TexMed, and remember to like and follow to receive every episode from TMA Practice Well. Until next time, stay well.